Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Lord, for our armies, I ask that you would make them brave, that you would protect them, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen, our marines, for our enemies, that you would confuse, that you would frustrate their plans, that you would save some of them. God, for our leaders, for the president, the House of Representatives, for the Senate, for the Supreme Court justices, for our leaders throughout this land, give them wisdom, guide and direct them. For the persecuted church, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. For Andrew Brunson, imprisoned in Turkey for a sea of Bibi on death row in Pakistan and for the other Christians from North Korea to Iran who are suffering, who are imprisoned, who are being tortured in this moment. Help them. And Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would keep me from error, protect me, As I speak, help me to say only what you want me to say. Nothing more, nothing less. That I would represent your word truthfully and accurately. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Today begins part 11, part 11 in our journey through the book of Joshua. And we're going to begin part 11 in chapter 8, verse 30 to 35. But before we do, let me remind you that there are some challenges dealing with this text, challenges that we examined a few weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 2, that sermon. And and the reason this is a somewhat challenging text today is because this passage, which has often been referred to as the floating pericope. Pericope is a section, a thought, a paragraph that's just kind of a fancy way that it's referred to within seminary field. Uh, This floating pericope, verses 30 to 35, is found in three different places. In the Masoretic text, it's found after the second battle of Ai, where it is in our English Bibles, after chapter 8, verse 29, but in the Qumran documents, the Qumran scrolls found in the Qumran caves, which you're probably familiar with them as the Dead Sea Scrolls, this floating pericope is not found after the second battle of Ai. It's not found in the same place as our English Bibles has it, but instead it places it after chapter 5, verse 2. And then, of course, the third option in the Greek text, this passage, this floating pericope, is found after chapter 9, verse 2. Which one is it? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be firmly anchored anywhere. In all three manuscripts, it's found in different places chronologically. And in fact, there are many scholars who think that it most likely belongs back in chapter 4 because it's in chapter 24 that there's a very similar renewal covenant going on, except the only problem with that is there's absolutely no manuscript tradition supporting that whatsoever. I have no idea where this floating pericope belongs in sequential chronological order in Joshua. But I don't think that's a problem. 
I don't think there's a problem. Not only do I not think it's a problem, but I think there's much for us to be pulled from this passage, regardless of where we place it, after chapter 9, 2, after chapter 5, 2, or where it sits in our English Bibles. And the focus of this, rather than the placement of the text, is what we see the people doing. Pausing. They are going to pause here in this story. They're going to pause to confess sins that need to be confessed. They're going to pause here to celebrate what God has done. They're going to pause here to make sacrifices. They're going to pause here to renew their commitment to God here at Mount Ebal. There seems to be an importance in pausing for the people. And from the standpoint, militarily, it's a terrible strategy. It's a terrible strategy because from where they're at at Ai, that is, if this story picks up after the Battle of Ai, and where they're going, it's essentially 20 miles out of the way, 20 miles on foot out of the way in the wrong direction of where they would naturally go next in their campaign and conquest of the land of Canaan. Militarily, this is probably not the best thing. It's not what I would do. And so it easily can seem like a distraction. It can easily seem like, listen, we can pause any old time to do this. Let's go fight the rest of the Canaanites and we can come back. We'll do this later. It easily seems that that their priorities are, are shifted around because the natural priority, going and battling the Canaanites, is paused. And yet despite the fact that it's some 20 miles out of the way, there seems to be this imperative for them to get back on track with God. That in getting back on track with God, in obeying God, that this would be a worthy interruption. Because nothing could be more important. Well, That's something I think for us as Christians to remember because oftentimes what's most important tends to get swept aside when our plates get full. The things that go first typically are the things of God, the people of God, the Word of God, God Himself. They typically get swept away and oftentimes we find ourselves, and I would include myself in this, saying, well, we can do that later. It doesn't have to be right now. And yet the people pausing to do this reveals not just the dedicated obedience, but reveals what truly is most important. And so that is where our story begins in chapter 8, verse 30, at this renewal ceremony. 20 miles out of the way, off the beaten path. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace 
offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now understand this, lest this seem to be totally random. The people had been given a very specific set of instructions. Flashing back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 29, a time when Moses was still alive, that specific set of instructions said this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. That was the instructions. That was the instructions. God said, do this. And just understanding from that point of view that it says, God says, do this, then I think we can begin to understand, okay, this might not make the most military sense. It's 20 miles off the beaten path. Do we have to really pause to do this right now? But at the end of the line, yes. Why? Because God said it. Why? Because we want to obey God. So that's why they're there at Mount Ebal. And Mount Gerizim, though Mount Ebal seems to be very much the focus in this floating pericope. And so this is what's going to happen. They're going to have half the tribes over here at Mount Gerizim. It seems like the base of the mountain. They're going to have the Levites, the Ark of the Covenant, the priests right in the center. And it seems like there's this valley. So if you can imagine mountain here, a mountain here. Six of the tribes are here. Six of the tribes are over here on Mount Ebal. The priests, the Ark of the Covenant, they're there in the middle. Picture that. Because Deuteronomy chapter 27 is going to illustrate this further. Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting in verse 12, says this, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Isaac, Joseph. Joseph. It's interesting. You see Joseph there? It's not Manasseh. It's not Ephraim. Both tribes are seemingly combined into the tribe of Joseph. And, and Benjamin. And this is, of course, over here on Mount Gerizim. These are the tribes that are going to be pronouncing the blessings. This is where Joshua will be standing because he is from the tribe of Joseph. So they're going to be over there. But then on the other side of the mountain, looking on the other side, are the six other tribes. And this is what it says in verse 13. And these shall sound on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. So there they are at this renewal ceremony of such. Pausing. Pausing to confess sin. Pausing to make sacrifices for their sins. Pausing to celebrate what God has done. Pausing to get back on track, to recommit themselves. Some of you guys know every year we do, we have recovenanting. Every September we do that. And people have asked me, is there a biblical basis for that that directly says that we should recovenant every year? And my answer is no. There's nothing that says that. But from a practical point of view, it's, I think, very helpful. Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander away from God. Why? Because it's beneficial to remember the commitments that we made. And, and for those of us who participate in that, those commitments are remembering that we've made a promise to worship God, love God, serve God, and come alongside and, and love the people who've also made that commitment. But we also have biblical examples, such as this renewal ceremony that's taking place here for, for the people. 
And you see the other examples, such as the different feasts and annual things, such as Passover, that people remember. Why? Because it recalls their mind the things of God. Why? Because we, like the people here in this story, have a selective memory. And this thing about after the first battle of Ai, Joshua is beside himself, and he's kind of forgotten all the miraculous things that God has done, such as, I don't know, just weeks, days earlier, defeating Jericho, such as crossing the Jordan, and yet he says, God, like, it would have been better if we just stand on the other side of the Jordan. Really? Have you, have you forgotten what I've done? And there's certainly a benefit in biblical examples Maybe not in the exact same way that we do, but certainly to the, to the same end and reminding us and recalling us God's faithfulness as well as our own commitment to Him. So that's what's going on. That's the stage here in this floating pericope. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, the Levitical priest, the Ark of the Covenant in the center, half the tribes over here with the blessings, half the tribes here on Ebal pronouncing curses. And so what we're going to do is oh, we'll go through some of these to see the first verse and kind of do it all participation, just like as if it was the real thing centuries ago. So I'll stand here on the part representing the Levitical priests, reading out these covenant curses, and you, as the people on Mount Ebal, will respond in the affirmative, Amen, when we get to the point that says Amen, which will be on the screen. Verse 14, And the the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, verse 15, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination of the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people shall say, Verse 17, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, 18, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, 20, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife. Because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, 21, cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say. 22, cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say. 23, cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say. 24, cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say. 25. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say. 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say. So there it was. The priest read the word, the people responded in the affirmative on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Amen. And I'm reading through this list and I'm like, this is pretty bizarre stuff when you're reading through all the, this, the covenant curses here. Like you do these things, you're going to be cursed. And I'm coming, and I, I kid you not, when I'm reading this in preparation for the sermon, I chuckled when I came to verse 18 
You can throw verse 18 up there. I'm looking at verse 18. Anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and I was like, man, that's pretty sick, right? Can you just imagine, like, a guy, he's like, you know, he's blind. He's like, can you tell me which way uh, the Vine Center is, and you send him, like, off toward North Campus? It's like, that's pretty rotten. It's pretty rotten. Like, like, can you, hey, I'm trying to get downtown to, like, Main Street. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's that way, and you tell him to go the wrong way. I had something come up in my Facebook news feed three weeks ago from six years ago. And it reminded me of this verse. And a friend of mine said, hey, Joe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to go with you to the senior picnic at the Fallwells. That was back when the Fallwells hosted this graduating seniors and they had a big cookout. And I, I responded and I said, I thought you had a wedding to go to. And my friend said, well, I do have a wedding to go to, but my friend, she's the bride and she's blind, so she won't know whether I'm there or not. And it made me think of this. Like, it's almost like somewhat comical. Like, who would, like, tell a blind person to go the wrong way? How rotten is that? As well as some of these things, they're pretty disgusting. And yet, here they are responding with amen. And in responding with amen, they're not, as the New American Commentary notes, they were not only pledging themselves to obedience but they were expressing their willingness to accept whatever judgment might accrue to their disobedience, end quote. They weren't just saying, yeah, we're going to obey, but they're also saying, we're also willing to accept whatever consequences may come as a result of us doing these things that are totally forbidden. And thus they did indeed curse their own people in that they gave approval to these covenantal requirements. And of course, someone asked, well, what are the curses? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us what the curse is. It's never actually stated. It seems to be that there is this consequence coming, whatever that may be, it doesn't state it, if you do the opposite. They're pausing. They're pausing here at Ebal. And Gerizim, they're pausing. And to understand that this pausing is a reminder to the people of what Joshua chapter 1 stated. When God told Joshua, Joshua, be careful to do all the things that Moses commanded you to do. Be careful. Be strong and courageous in order that you may be so careful to do all the things that Moses told you to do, all the things that he instructed you to do, not deviating to the left or the right. In pausing here at Mount Ebal, they are recalling the importance of obeying God in their affirmation and acceptance of whatever consequences may come if they don't to that. And so they pause. And they don't seem to see this as a waste of time, as an inconvenience. Not this interruption. There are some interruptions which are worthy worthy of our time, worthy of our attention, worthy of our affections. And that is the sort of interruption that's taking place here at Mount Ebal. 
And so they're offering sacrifices. They're offering burnt offerings. They're offering peace and fellowship offerings. And the fact, and understand this, the fact that they are offering burnt offerings is significant. Burnt offerings would be where you take the animal, throw it on the altar, and the whole animal would be consumed. Nothing's left. It's all destroyed. And these would be offered, according to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, these would be offered to atone for the sin of the one sacrificing them. Therefore, to understand that one of the reasons that they are pausing is they're pausing to deal with crap going on in their lives. They're pausing to confess sin. The fact that burnt offerings are being offered. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but there's a tendency that we have to say, well, I can deal with that sin, that garbage in my life later on. I don't need to deal with it right now. And you picture the animal on the offering and the smoke going up as a pleasing aroma, Exodus tells us, to God. And I think about sometimes our unwillingness to let go of certain sins, to confess, to repent of them. And it's interesting because when you think about the picture of the animal on the altar, the smoke going up, it made me think of the smoke detectors going off in my house or smoke detectors going off in your house. It doesn't really matter whose house. The picture is the smoke detectors. Picture that. A smoke detector goes off. I'm pretty sure whatever you're doing is put on pause. You can be doing anything. You might be annoyed. You might be mad. But you're dealing with it now. You're going. You're opening the windows. There might not be a fire. It doesn't matter. The smoke detector, there might only be a little smoke going. doesn't matter. You pause. You deal with what needs to be dealt with right now. And in the case, it's turning off this annoying noise. And you think about what they're doing. Part of what they're doing at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, is they're pausing to confess sin, garbage, and crap in their life. And that's evident in the fact that they're offering burnt offerings. Burnt offerings are offered to atone for the sin on part of the one who's offering it. And yet, so often, we're so reluctant. It's like, there's that smoke alarm going off, right? There's sin in your life, right? You you feel that? That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. And so many people, we, I'll just deal with that later. It's just stupid, because in our own lives, like, we would go and deal with that smoke detector right then and there, but oftentimes, that, that alarm goes off, and it's like, oh, that's a little bit of smoke, I can deal with it. Right, that sin over there in my life, I don't need to worry about that now. Goodness, sometimes it gets to the point where there's a a full-blown fire and we're just like, whatever, no worries. We wouldn't do that if it was happening in our house and yet for some reason it's happening in our very lives as we are in rebellion to God and we just ignore it. No, there there is a necessity for the people to pause just as in our own life. There, there comes a necessity for us to pause and take care of whatever is not right between us and God here and now, especially before it gets worse because that's what sin does and it contaminates things and it does get worse. It starts off small and then before you know it, it's three months, six months, nine months later and you have gone from walking with God to now you're miles off the reservation. And you're like, how in the world did I get so far from God? No, they're pausing to deal with what needs to be dealt with right here and right now. And besides burnt offerings, they're also, they're, they have fellowship offerings, they have peace offerings, and these would have been joyful, celebratory in nature. They would have been an offering, and part of the offering would have been consumed, but part of the offering would have been held back for the people to consume it themselves. 
So they bring an animal, part of it gets sacrificed, the other part they get to eat, they get to enjoy. And it, that fellowship, that peace offering served as a picture. It's joyful, it's celebratory in nature, but it served as a picture between the fellowship of God and the person. It pictures that, that right relationship between God and his people. Things are the way they're supposed to be, that we're in fellowship together, we're having a meal together. That's what fellowship and peace offerings picture. They pause to confess sin, but they also pause to celebrate God's faithfulness and what he's done. Sometimes I don't think we do this often enough. To think about how God has spared us, how God has provided for us, I mean, I counseled with a guy on Saturday who just had a really, really rough week. Really rough week. A guy whose wedding I had done, who had his court hearing and pretty much lost custody of his kids. And yet I think about as rough as that is, Because I know the response. People say, well, you don't know. Things really aren't that good or great. God hasn't been that good to me. And I think about even for this, this, this guy, because I imagine none of you had as rough a week as him. It's still better when you compare that to, I don't know, a Siababi who's been in prison for over seven years in Pakistan on death row. She's waiting to be executed because she's a Christian. Or Andrew Brunson in Turkey who's facing a 35-year prison sentence because he's a Christian. Yes, God has been faithful. God has been good to you. The fact that you're sitting here, that you probably haven't missed a meal, at least maybe only because you lost track of time. The fact that you were able to walk in here today. These fellowship offerings, these peace offerings were joyful. They were celebratory in nature. And then he says in verse 33, And all Israel sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of, in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel and afterward he read all the words of the law the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read. He read everything he was supposed to. He didn't leave anything out. Complete, total allegiance and obedience to God. Could be another way to paraphrase 35. Before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, Throw back, go back to verse 33 for a second. Sojourner. I want to hover on this word for a second. Sojourner. This would have referred to the permanent residence within Israel. This would have referred to Rahab, who back in chapter 2, she's not an Israelite ethnically. She would have been a sojourner. She would have been a permanent resident. But this would not have included, sojourners would not have been people that they had incidental contact with in Israel, such as travelers or traders. That wouldn't have qualified as a sojourner. But sojourner, aliens, these would have been permanent 
residents in Israel, and the Israelites were instructed to give very special care to them. And some of you may remember in the story of Ruth, and even leaving corners of the field untouched, that was special instructions. There were special instructions for the sojourners, for the people who were not ethnically Israel. And, and part of the reason behind this, they were supposed to give such special care and attention to them, according to passages like Exodus twenty two twenty one, is because Israel used to be on the outside looking in. Because Israel used to be on the outside looking in. Israel, there was a time when they were in Egypt. And so Exodus twenty two twenty one says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Part of the reason there was such a special emphasis and focus on the sojourners is because there was a time when Israel was on the outside looking in, when they were living in another land, when they were slaves in Egypt. And so they were supposed to have special care, special treatment for these people. And the story of Rahab certainly illustrates that this is a very much open system. It's an open system under certain circumstances and criteria. And I think we see that clarified in her confession. Remember what she tells the spies? The Lord your God, he is God. And of course, the word Lord there is not the generic term, but rather the specific name for God, Yahweh. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. And from that, we understand that she was no longer viewed as an outsider, but now as one of them. She, in essence, made herself an Israelite back there. And so, it very much is clear here that there's an emphasis that the sojourners, the sojourners are included in this renewal ceremony. They're, they're included in this, and, and we know from other texts this doesn't come as a huge surprise because they were able to participate in Passover and the Sabbath and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles and First Fruits so long as they were circumcised according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 to 49. And in being circumcised, in that sense, they were true converts to God. They were true followers of God. And so I think what we see here in the emphasis of the sojourners in both verse 33 and 35 are included that they're participating in this special renewal ceremony goes to illustrate the point that Israel's God, Israel's faith, it's open. Like, whoever believes... Like, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a closed system of faith. It's, it's open. It's inclusive to anyone if they come. And I think this is important to remember. There's certainly two extremes. And the one extreme I think that needs to be dealt with is understanding that Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, anyone. Old, young. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is from every ethnic, linguistic background, from every tribe, from every nation, from every race. Like, like the gospel, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection for, of Christ, it's open to anyone. Like whoever comes, like Rahab, if they come, it's totally inclusive. But it matters how they come. Because you take the extreme, and we see this today in 2018, 
And the other extreme is, well, look at the sojourners. They're included in this special renewal ceremony. Seems like the Bible, the God of the Bible, he's very open to all people. And then they go to all faiths, like it doesn't matter as long as you're really sincere. Whether you worship a different God, call him by a different name, that's okay. Islam, Mormonism, that's okay. The gospel, the God of the Bible, is open for whoever comes. Or especially in the LGBTQIA community, like, if you come, it's okay. Well, the gospel is certainly open to all. And the fact that the sojourners here are included illustrates that very, very clearly. But it matters, understand this, how you come. Because there are ways to, and I'll put in air quotes, come in which prove and give evidence that you haven't. That you haven't. You see, it matters how we come. I recently shared on Instagram, and I think this will illustrate what I'm trying to say. I picked up a magazine from Table Talk, from Ligonier Ministries. And here was the quote that captures the essence of how you come. To be a Christian means to believe what God says in His Word is true, even if everyone around you disagrees. To be a Christian means to believe that what God says in His Word is true, even if everyone around you disagrees. And that's hard because there's a lot more people, I feel, in 2018 that disagrees than maybe in 2008. Give it five more years, ten more years, it will be that much more unpopular. For whoever will come, if they will but come the way Rahab come, if they will come and bow the knee to the living God, who is the God in the heavens above and on the earth below, and they submit to God and what His Word says, versus the other side that comes, but they come with their own agenda. They come in the way they want to come. On social media, there was a guy that I went to my Christian high school in Alaska, and this was on his Facebook this last week. It said, Proud LGBTQIA Christian. The problem with that is that person doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a proud LGBTQIA Christian according to the Bible. That would be like if I said, like, and it doesn't matter his sincerity, I think he's really sincere. That's not the issue. The issue is what does the Bible say? Read 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Read Romans 1, like 24 to 30. Just start there. That'd be like if I said, I'm a proud, tom-catting, fornicating, adulterating Christian. You'd be like, wait, what? Yeah! I don't think that's possible. You're married and you're a proud, tom-catting, fornicating, adulterating Christian? Yes! I love God. He loves me. He understands. I've just got urges. So I don't think that's possible. Why? Because it matters how you come. A lot of people want to come on their own terms to God. I'm going to come 
But this is how I'm going to come. Let me tell you. Let me set the parameters. Let me dictate how this is going to work. No. No. The fact that the sojourners are here on this list, that they're included in this renewal ceremony is beautiful. It's a picture, right, of God's love for all men from every nation, from every tribe, from every ethno-linguistic background. But understand this. It matters how we come. It matters how we come to God, whether we come on His terms or on our own terms. You cannot come on your own terms. Many people try and even think they've succeeded. And that is the greatest lie, one of the greatest lies that the devil tells us. And so the sojourners, they're here, and it begs the question, thinking about the fact that they're pausing here to confess sin, they're pausing here to celebrate what God's done, they're pausing here to renew their commitment to God. And it brings up the question for us practically is how should Christians relate to those outside the faith? How how do we relate to people who are sojourners, who maybe like Rahab, okay, and you guys know Rahab, she's, you know, not the greatest story. Uh, working in the entertainment business, uh, a Canaanite, serving pagan gods. She's, she's not what you want your little girl to grow up to be like, at least in her pre-salvation uh, uh, stage. That's, that's not what I think any mother or father wants. And so it begs the question, right, with sojourners living in and among the Israelites, these people who looked different. I'm sure Rahab maybe looked a little bit different. They talked different. They maybe had a, they, they, had, they spoke a different language or if they did speak the same language, they spoke with an accent. Whatever it may have been, it begs the question is how do we relate to those outside the faith? Lest it just turn into a club or a clique. A clique. I think that's what you'd call it. Right? We like it. It's cool. We've got our friends. We've got our place that we sit. It's good. Life is good. Got, got my church. Got my people. Don't disrupt that. Sometimes the people say, I don't want to disrupt that. Like, how dare you change the color of the carpet? I don't really have, we don't have to worry about that because it's not our building. We just pay rent. We just have to worry about paying rent. But you know what I'm saying. Like, it's almost where the, it becomes almost idealistic. Like, that's my, that's my people. That's my community. You better not disrupt that. I was talking to uh, a young lady. I used to go to LCC about the challenges that she's having at, at, at her church in a different state. Because it's very much like that. Where newer people, outsiders, sojourners, don't exactly feel welcome, like they can come and be, be in. They can't break through. And so that, that's the question that needs to be answered. And I think Jesus, he gives pretty good advice. He would say this, disciples, followers of Christ, live in such a way that you are a light to the world. Live in such a way that you are a city on a hill. Live in such a way that you point other people toward the greatness of God. And Peter would say it another way, First Peter 2.12, he would say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
What are the, the practical implications for how we are to live with outsiders? And I think Peter and Jesus nail it. Like, live in such a way that it's clear to the world that Christ is your treasure. Live in such a way that people see how you live and they want to meet your God. But the challenge is not to get too comfortable. See, Galatians 6.10 illustrates this, right? Do good to everyone, outward focus, especially those who are of the household of faith, inward focus. Oftentimes we do a great job with the inward focus, loving our brothers and sisters, but sometimes we don't do as well as loving everyone, including those outside our faith community. And the problem with that is... As Paul says in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone opens their mouth and speaks to them? Like part of living in such a way that they see our good deeds and they glorify God, part of living in this way that they'll want to meet our God is we're going to require us to open our mouths. Just practically speaking. It will require that. I don't know how many weeks or months ago the sermon was. Something came up. I remember it came up. The, the cliche, heretical quote that says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. <laughs> Any other way to preach it, right? Preach the gospel. You've heard it, right? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. There is no other way. You've got to open your mouth. Taking a plate of brownies to the friends, to the co-workers, to the neighbors will save no one. You've got to open your mouth at some point and tell them about Jesus. Yes, they may have heard about Jesus ten other times. It might take the eleventh time before the Holy Spirit breaks through and just changes them. And they realize, i gotta, I got to i got to take care of things with God right now, right here. We need to live in such a way that the natives will want to meet our king. Why? Because there was a time when we were on the outside looking in. There was a time when we were like these sojourners. There was a time in our life, every single one of us, when we were enemies of God, Romans 5.10. That we were haters of God, Romans 1.30. That even our thoughts, our minds were opposed to God, Romans 8.7. That we were in rebellion and in high treason against the king. There was a time. And God in His love and His mercy and His patience have drawn many of us to Him. But there was a time when we were not in the club, as you might say. Like Rahab. And like many of these other sojourners here. Like the millions of unsaved and unchurched people. And oh yes, there's unchurched and unsaved people in this city. Many. Don't let Liberty University obscure that or cause you to think otherwise. And so I realize, and I've been really convicted thinking about this 
and I've shared with this, some of you guys this over the last couple of weeks, that it's going to require, if I have to live in such a way that the natives will want to meet my God, it's going to require me opening my mouth, and that's going to require me having some sort of interaction with unbelievers. And so that's why two or three weeks ago, I felt so convicted over this issue. I was like, I'm going to sign up for Uber and Lyft just to go and meet people just to be able to have intentional conversations while they're trapped, while, I mean, while they're in the back seat of my car. Just to be able to talk to them. I was talking to a girl yesterday, and she just told me how lonely she's been. It's interesting, a lot of the people that I pick up, that I picked up and given rice or told Diana this, they don't have any community. They have, they have no community, which makes sense, because if they probably did, they probably wouldn't be using Uber in the first place or Lyft. But for me, I felt so convicted, like, I've got to do something. I need to be able to open my mouth and expose myself to unbelievers, unchurched people, so that I can, First Peter 2.12 it up, let my good deeds be seen before them, that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. So that we live in such a way that the natives will want to meet our king. But that's what's going to require us to, one, put ourselves in situations where we're going to have, have interaction, and two, they're going to have the courage to open our mouth and at the very least say, Hi, how are you? I can't get to, like, gospel unless I have a conversation with them. And I can't have a conversation unless I open my mouth to them. This is how we need to live. Because there was a time when we too were sojourners on the outside looking in like our ancestors when they were in Egypt and that's of course why the focus is on the special treatment to them the people come to Mount Ebal to pause pause to deal with crap and garbage and sin in their life pause to celebrate God's faithfulness and what he's done and they pause to recommit, to refocus, and to get back on track. The track that Joshua was given in chapter 1, to be strong and courageous, to be careful, to obey all that God had told and instructed him. 20 miles out of their way. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's inconvenient. I usually say, when is it ever the right time? But, now, but here, whether you're in this room or listening like online, like, like it's, it's the right time now. And so as the band comes, I'd like to just pray for us. Lord, help us to make you the priority in our lives that you deserve, that you ought to be. That we would not see pausing to worship you, pausing to deal with sin in our lives, pausing to reflect on your goodness, pausing to pursue you in prayer and your word, pausing to gather with the saints corporately, that we would not see that as a distraction, that we would not see that as getting in the way of things, but that we would see that as critical and important, 
a worthy interruption to be had. That we wouldn't put it off, pausing. And God, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. As a room, and even people listening online, who I imagine are mostly Gentiles, like Rahab, I thank you that the gospel is inclusive forever who would come. Forever would believe, for whoever would bow the knee and follow you. So help us, God, to follow you and help us to live in such a way that the sojourners, the outsiders, the unbelievers help us to live in such a way that they would want to meet you, our King and our God. In your name we pray, amen.